And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, June 29th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, this lawyer got a settlement from a powerful industry after a 20-year dispute. Plus, Health and Human Services tries speaking in many languages. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, with higher salaries on the horizon, attrition is way down at the Transportation Security Administration. But TSA's top official says a House funding bill would force the agency to reverse forthcoming pay increases for non-screening employees like air marshals and canine handlers. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And first of all, when are the increases supposed to kick in? So the increased pay rates will kick in for TSA employees beginning July 2nd, and they should see that hitting their paychecks toward the end of July. TSA Administrator David Pikoski told the House Homeland Security, Transportation and Maritime Security Subcommittee about these pay increases coming last week. And of course, Congress included funding in the latest appropriations bill for TSA to actually bring these salaries up and in line with much of the rest of of the federal workforce. So TSA forecast earlier this year that salaries would increase on average about 30 percent across TSA. That depends on, of course, how long you've been there how much you're paid today and what position you're in. But in general, a 30% pay increase, so pretty substantial. And folks should have been aware of their specific pay increases since April when TSA began sending letters to each TSA employee laying out specifically what they would be getting. So that's good news for the workforce there at TSA starting next month. Okay, and before we get to the threat to that increase, let's talk about that idea of less attrition in the case of transportation security officers. That's something they're really seeing? Yeah, TSA has been struggling with attrition for its entire existence, really, for the last two decades. But it's down nearly 50% since the beginning of fiscal 2023. According to uh, Pekoski, TSA has gone from losing an average of 381 officers every two-week period at the beginning of fiscal 2023 to losing an average of 202 officers per pay period over the last five pay periods. That's about over the last three or so months. And so Pekoski says there's been a 53% uptick in applications to TSA this year, as opposed to last year as well. The agency has added 212 officers on average over the past five pay periods as well. So all this is adding up to TSA potentially needing to hire 5,000 fewer officers next year than they had originally projected. So attrition is indeed way down at the agency, and they're attributing it to the pay increases. Well, it's good to know at least one thing is going right at the airports. And there's a flip side, though, that some of these pay increases could be reversed because of what Congress is cooking up. Yeah, the House Appropriations Committee's fiscal 2024 spending bill would prohibit pay reforms for any TSA employee that is not a transportation security officer. So TSA screening workforce, those officers, those folks in blue you see at the airports, they're the bulk of the workforce, about 45,000 officers or so. There's still another 15,000 people throughout TSA in different support functions and other functions that this pay reform prohibition would affect. Uh, Pekoski, during his testimony, stressed that those folks' pay is already on a lower scale as well compared to their counterparts throughout government. I think everybody can understand if a person is receiving a certain level of pay in July and August and September, and then let's say for argument's sake, the budget passes at the beginning of the fiscal year and that pay goes down. 
that will have an incredibly negative impact on the workforce of TSA. Additionally, as the administrator, I would be faced with the challenge of managing two different pay scales within the same agency. Yeah, a lot could definitely go wrong. He's right about that. Now, these specific positions that would be impacted if that reversal happens, all the air marshals, I mean, who exactly would be hit here? That's right. The federal air marshals, because he also mentioned canine handlers, explosives experts, uh, vetting experts, coordination center officers at the airports, uh, aviation regulatory inspectors, and then the headquarters operations employees here in Washington, the Washington area, cybersecurity employees too. Uh, that cybersecurity has become a bigger part of TSA's mission over the past couple of years. So, you know, TSA's screening workforce seems to be kind of in the clear with regard to both sides of the aisle wanting to continue these pay reforms. But Pekoski said the non-screening workforce is also a big part of what they need to do at TSA. And he says it's going to potentially be a big struggle to keep people at headquarters positions. Yeah, imagine being an air marshal and you're walking through a screening to get to your airplane flight and you know you've just got a big cut and the TSA officer that screens you has the bigger. That could make some tough relations going on there. Yeah, and here's what Pekoski had to say about that prospect. You can imagine how hard it is for us in our headquarters positions. If somebody is doing the very same job in TSA and they could get so much more money working for another federal agency, it makes us hard to retain that talent in TSA, particularly in places like Washington, D.C., where it's very easy to switch employers. And so I, you know, I look at the immediate impact on people, and I also look on the long-term impact um, on the agency. So what is the outlook for this legislative gambit? What's going on in Congress that uh, could strip all of this back? Well, appropriators in the Democrat-led Senate have yet to put forward their counterpart funding bill. It's hard to see them kind of including this pay prohibition for the non-screening workforce at TSA, but we'll have to see what they come up with. You know, the subcommittee members, the transportation subcommittee and security members, even on the Republican side, actually seem to be caught off guard by Pekoski's comments about these pay reforms and how it would affect the agency. Subcommittee Chairman Carlos Jimenez actually said he didn't think they were aware of this kind of affecting TSA in that way, having to put pay up and then bring it back next fiscal year if that bill becomes law. And Clay Higgins, he's a Republican from Louisiana, acknowledged Congress has some difficult budget decisions to make, but he voiced opposition actually to reversing any of the forthcoming pay increases. We have to make difficult budget decisions, but we're not going to do it at the, the cost of an American citizen's pay that has been adjusted appropriately to be relatively equivalent to their colleagues in a similar position in another division of government. It's a moment when we stand united, I believe, on both sides of the aisle to find a way forward there to protect your TSA workers' pay increase. And again, that's Louisiana Republican Clay Higgins talking about TSA workforce initiatives. Yeah, not good optics, as they say in Washington, or good really practice to give someone a pay raise, then claw it back, you know, in the uh, in the next round of legislation. So it looks like maybe it won't happen, the clawback. It's it's depends on the appropriations process. As you know, you, it, people are talking about a government shutdown already in Washington. There's probably going to be a, a CR and it's going to have to shake out in this much broader appropriations process. But you're seeing there, obviously, some Republicans already say, 
no, this is not going to happen. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, Health and Human Services tries speaking in many, many languages. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The reality in America is that millions don't speak English or English is not their first language. The Health and Human Services Department studied its own efforts to make information and services available to non-English speakers as part of compliance with the Biden administration's executive order 13985 on racial equity. Here with what it found, the director of HHS's Office for Civil Rights, Melanie Fontes Rayner. Ms. Fontes Rayner, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. What were you seeking to find out? Was it more what HHS is doing to make sure that you are there with the languages people need online and so forth? Or was it measuring access externally for people to don't speak English or have limited English ability? We have a lot of data that shows there's a lack of meaningful language access in this country and that that can lead to inequitable access to Um, the programs and services we run at the Department of Health and Human Services. We know that 21.5% of people in the United States speak a language other than English at home, and of those, 8.2% speak English less than very well, and therefore would meet the department's definition of limited English proficiency. If you don't know what's being said, if you can't communicate with your provider, um, how are you supposed to establish that patient provider trust, understand the severity of what's happening to you, what is needed to make you better, amongst other things, right? Like bills, um, insurance, other things that are, you know, in the healthcare space can be jargony and, you know, are hard to understand even if you don't have a limited English proficiency. Um, So the report we put out summarizes the the department's progress um, that we've made on improving this provision of um, meaningful language access and assistance to language assistance services for persons with limited English proficiency and identifies steps to strengthen this work across HHS. Of note, this report was translated into English, Spanish, Chinese, and traditional Chinese, which is something the department is trying to do more of. Question on those to whom these provisions apply is not simply HHS itself, but HHS funds many of the third-party providers of health care and other services throughout the country to the tune of trillions, literally. And so those organizations also have to have language access because Absolutely. they are ultimately federally funded. Fair to yeah, say? Yeah, it is both the services we fund and the services conducted by us, right, which is a pretty broad swath of programs and services. Yeah, because if you look at, say, Medicare, that's probably two-thirds or three-fourths of the medical establishment. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a hospital in the United States that doesn't accept Medicare. This work was dormant for a long time. The department hadn't really done anything since 2016. The previous administration dismantled the HHS Language Access Steering Committee. So we've recently relaunched that. That's run by our office. It's senior leaders across all of HHS. There's representation from every single part of HHS. And we're working to update and refresh language access plans, Some of the plans, as noted in the report, are 10 years old, but they exist, and then we're sort of re-emphasizing them, and we're working through updating the new plans within the next year. This is like the entry point into the healthcare system, and if you 
you don't, you don't know what's happening. How, how the heck are you supposed to engage and do patient-centered care? All the things that are supposed to be better and help your health outcomes and be for, for you, how are you supposed to engage in that? What was the um, methodology for the analysis that you did? Because other departments may want to say, hey, you know, we'd like to have better language access to what we're doing. We examined the 25 plans submitted by every single HHS operating and staff divisions, including their provisions for areas of in-language website, listserv, and public outreach content, telephonic interpreter services, and availability of program and benefit information in other languages, as well as funding for recipients to provide language access services. So we looked at that across the entirety of the department we assess, and you'll find in the report, areas where, you know, we need improvement. And we're working on now, we again identified that some of these plans are, are from 2013, the last time the department did this, which is, you know, 10 years ago, working to update those and refresh those. And I would say a big part of that that will be helpful is the rule that my office implements for the department, Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. This is a, a regulation that's non-discrimination in health programs and activities on many bases, including race, which could be limited English proficiency. And so this rule, again, was um, taken down in the previous administration. And so now we're working to update that. This will better align the rule under the Affordable Care Act with recent developments in civil rights case law under Title VI and Section 504 to better address these issues of discrimination. So covered entities, um, whether it's HHS itself or a grant or service, or like you said, a hospital and Medicare and Medicaid, that they will have notice for how the department is going to be enforcing the law and what kinds of steps they need to be taking here to improve. Things like having a coordinator, things like training your staff, right? Like all of those are things that we do in other civil rights laws that some of those efforts were scaled back here. We're speaking with Melanie fontes Rayner. She's director of the Office for Civil Rights at the Health and Human Services Department. How granular does this get? Because in some areas of the country, you could have 15 different languages in a six-block area. And also, what about the financial burden on small recipients, small health care providers who nevertheless might be in Medicare, Medicaid, and so on, to, to have interpreters and to change their, if they have websites, or documentation, I guess written documentation. People have to sign when they go to a medical facility. There's a lot to it as a burden. And how does that balance? Yeah. So part of that is the work that we're doing with the Section 1557 um, rule. So we issued a proposed rule last fall and we received 85,000 comments. So it was quite popular if we want to spin it positive. We're looking at those. We're working to finalize that rule as quickly as possible. Um, But in that rule, we address some of these questions, right? We ask the question whether the current standard of the, the top 15 or so languages is enough, or as you're noting, right, there are like places in the United States that are geographically diverse. There are places, you know, cities and counties where, you know, Los Angeles County, right, if I, if we're to look at an assessment of languages there, 15 is probably not enough, right, because there's so many different communities there. Um, and, and how do we work with that, both within the standards that exist within Medicaid and Medicare, but also make sure we're being inclusive enough. And so that's one of the things we're contemplating in this final rule. And we got a lot of comments from all the major medical associations, health insurance companies, et cetera. Um, so something that we'll be working on. And then also, absolutely, the cost burden is, is, a, is a real thing. And that's why in the proposed rule, we, in the past, the department had asked for covered entities, whether it's a health insurance company or a provider or a hospital of a certain size, 
to do a lot of this work themselves. But in our proposed rule this past year, we actually are providing model notices. We're proposing providing model notices in translated um, languages that will help lift some of the financial burden onto covered entities and also provide some of these services for them, which is a step that was proposed in the proposed rule and that we got a bunch of comments on it. I think a lot of positive comments from covered entities that that is you know, helpful and in, in trying to lift that burden. I think we're also trying to take other steps across the department, right? We have a language access coordinator we're putting into place, whether we co-locate some resources across the department for smaller agencies. But I think all of those are things that will help the community because they'll show, A, it's a priority, not an afterthought, and B, the department is providing resources for covered entities around the country, knowing that not every hospital is giant and it has sure. a lot of resources. And do you sense that there might be a technological help for a lot of this translation challenge. If you have to change your website or change documentation, there are tools now, software tools, artificial intelligence, that do a lot better job of translating than they did, say, five or ten years ago. Is that something you envision people maybe using? That's definitely something we got comments on in our proposed rule. Some were saying, hey, use artificial intelligence. It's great. Some also were saying, absolutely not. Don't use artificial intelligence because I think, as we all know, Google Translate, for example, doesn't always get the verbiage right. And sometimes there are cultural um, differences in how we use words and there might be differences in how something is phrased. And that might mean that someone is not getting all of the information necessary. And so I think absolutely there has been advancements in the space. And I think we want to tread that line carefully to make sure that we're not just saying, okay, fine, you know, you don't have to have anyone on staff that can translate. You don't have to have translation services you can just use artificial intelligence. That's absolutely not what we're saying, but it is certainly something we're contemplating to figure out where is the line there to make sure that this isn't a substitute for you know meaningful work in this space to provide meaningful access to care. And what is the status of the rule now? Is it still in the proposed stage when are comments finalized? And what's your plan for getting the rule to the final point? Comments period closed last October of 2022. So we are working on finalizing the rule, and um, I believe the Unified Reg agenda has it coming out in this fall of 2023, which is our goal. And by the way, of those 85,000 comments, were they auto-generated, or did you get some real variety in the comments <laughs> that you got? I, I, you know, I think typically with big rules like 1557, where people have some really strong viewpoints, we typically get a mixed bag. We got a number of large associations like HIP and AMA and AHA who weighed in and gave very thoughtful comments. Um, but certainly, you know, on a civil rights rule, you're going to get letter writing campaigns where you get a lot of pro forma letters where people are just signing their names and telling you why you got it wrong or why you got it right. And I certainly we saw a lot of that, too. I can't say whether or not they're AI generated, but right. they are certainly the same. But yes, it's not a plebiscite anyway with a rule. It's really a, you're supposed to evaluate them on their face value. And if 85,000 say the same, you know, 80,000 say the same thing, that can kind kind of count as one versus the 5,000 that said something else. I mean, we read every single comment, right, regardless of they say the same or not. Like our staff is actually absolutely reading every single comment because, you know, we want to make sure we're assessing this and, and getting the sense from the public of what we've done here. And so, you know, I think that's just part of I think that's always been part of this work. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll see how that comes out in the fall. Melanie fontes Rayner is director of the Office for Civil Rights at the Health and Human Services Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the Air Force secrets leaker could end up getting away with it. 
But first, this federal lawyer got a settlement from a powerful industry after a 20-year dispute. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. When you hit that convenience store for a pack of smokes, you might notice the warning sign. That's thanks to my next guest. She produced a settlement in a long-running dispute with the tobacco industry about retail signage. For her tenacity and skill in this and other cases, she's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. The assistant director of the Consumer Protection Branch of the Justice Department, Lisa Shaw, joins me now. Ms. Shaw, good to have you with us. Nice to be here. And I want to ask you about another case that was cited in your Sammy's Award, and congratulations on that, by the way. And that is a $5 billion settlement with Facebook. Golly, I thought I remembered that one, but tell us what happened there. Uh, So that settlement, like all of the cases I've been in, cannot take credit myself. There are many other people involved. The Facebook settlement was actually negotiated by the Federal Trade Commission and referred to the Justice Department. And then the Justice Department took that settlement. We tweaked it a little bit and we ended up filing it and defending the settlement itself. The settlement resulted because Facebook had had basically been misleading to consumers about how it was using their information. And uh, just as an example that many people can probably relate to, if you have an app and you have a Facebook account, many people report, for example, their running times on using Strava or an app like that. uh, And they put on Facebook, oh, I ran 10 miles today. Uh, Well, Facebook didn't tell people that they were sharing not only your information with people that were your Facebook friends, but also your Facebook friends' friends. So your information was going much further than Facebook had been representing. And so it was that type of allegedly unfair and deceptive conduct that led the FTC and Facebook to settle. That actually resulted in a $5 billion payment, which was unprecedented and remains unprecedented in this type of FTC civil penalties case. And that money went to the Treasury, that is to say, but did consumers didn't get 40 cents a piece or anything like these class action suits? No. And a lot of people, uh, including consumers, reach out to us all the time when we win a civil penalty suit saying, hey, where's my money? There are many times where we actually do collect money and give money back to consumers where they have lost money. Uh, In the Facebook case, that was not applicable because there were not that we could tell consumers that it actually had lost money as a result of this deal. It was more you know, sort of the ephemeral data cost and, and your privacy cost. So in that case, we didn't give back money, but we we do give back remedial relief in many cases. Sure. But is the model of the Justice Department then backing up what is ruled by the FTC? Is that a fairly common model? It's not exactly ruled by the FTC. There's a statutory framework, which is the FTC Bureau of Consumer Protection investigates allegations of wrongdoing. And then when they determine that there's enough to bring a case against somebody and seek civil penalties, then they are required to refer to the Justice Department. And so we take cases that both the FTC has settled, and we also take cases that they they have not been able to settle. And so, you know, we've, we've had some very significant litigated cases, including a case 
against Dish Network for telemarketing, you know, millions and hundreds of millions of telemarketing violations, and a case against MyLife.com for deceptive marketing of background reports online. And in the tobacco settlement with respect to labeling, I thought everything having to do with tobacco had been settled already. But tell us about that recent development. The tobacco case that was brought by the United States and several public health entities like the, you know, the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, that case has been going on for 23, 24 years now. It was filed in 1999. The plaintiffs won, um, and we won a big injunction, no money. But we want a big injunction, and that's what resulted in all of those, you know, little white boxes on the magazine ads. That's what resulted in no longer being able to advertise on TV. But what was the last piece that had not been resolved, and the tobacco companies continued to fight, was having to post signs in retail stores, basically saying, a federal court has ordered that we have to tell you that tobacco can kill, right? Secondhand smoke kills, et cetera. But that was the result of, again, not just me. I just happened to be leading the ship at the time when it settled, but a a group of attorneys in consumer protection branch that saw the opportunity for a settlement based on ongoing litigation and took upon it, took it upon ourselves to go to the tobacco companies and say, Hey, we think we might be able to settle. And so we had three or four months of ongoing calls with them, but ultimately the parties were able to reach a resolution and that was ultimately entered. I believe last fall sometime. And so now we're going to see signs, I think, starting next month in retail stores, if not already. It may have already been started. We're speaking with Lisa Schau. She is assistant director of the Consumer Protection Branch of the Justice Department and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And you've mentioned a couple of times there's a team that does that, and yet you were named for tenacity and your ability to really stick through a case to resolve these things that can run for a long time. So What is your motivation in doing this kind of work? For me, I feel like unlike a lot of big law work, and I was in private practice for a long time before I came to the government, you know, the cases that I do are not just about pushing money around. It's about using the enforcement power of the government to really help consumers by going after not only scammers, and we do, we go after a lot of scammers, both civilly and criminally but also going after some of the biggest companies in the world to prevent them from taking advantage of people, from misleading people, you know, from ripping people off in in some cases by, you know, for example, continuing to charge you for a subscription you didn't know you signed up for two years ago and then making it impossible to cancel. And so I, I feel very committed to the work that my branch does and, you know, really happy to advance that. And it is not always easy. You know, we have much fewer resources than big law or these very large companies, but I feel like it's very worthwhile. And the precedents that we make will last long and they will be able to be used by other people, including consumers and other future administrations to continue the work that we're doing. Did you guys have anything to do with the big recent settlements with those ticket brokering companies? The president even mentioned it. We have not at the Justice Department taken any action about it, but that does not mean it's not going to happen. So, What else have you got cooking? Well, we just filed a major settlement with Amazon into basically how it treated children's information, how the Alexa program collects children's personal information. Um, And Amazon agreed to pay $25 million to settle allegations that they were 
retaining children's personal information for too long, and they were deceiving parents or misleading parents about how they were storing kids' information. In some cases, parents were requesting kids' information be deleted, and it wasn't deleted. And a lot of people don't understand that Amazon is actually keeping your kids' recordings. We just filed a case like that. We just filed a, a major settlement against Microsoft for $20 million. Same type of thing. Microsoft Xbox Live was basically collecting kids' information and not telling parents or seeking parental consent ahead of time. And then last winter, I guess, we, or maybe this past winter in January, we had a $275 million settlement against Epic Games, which makes Fortnite basically uh, epic new kids were playing Fortnite online and was doing nothing to get parental consent and so they agreed to pay a big settlement and basically completely overhaul the way that they contact parents to get their consent for their kids to play these video games online sure. so lots of stuff happening and if you look at some of these cases there is an underlying theme here and that is there's a data and algorithmic component to this and all we hear about now is the rise of algorithms and applications that use them, artificial intelligence. Do you get the sense that that is something that is going to increase in coming years? Absolutely. With respect to artificial intelligence, I will add that one of the challenges of the work that I do is that there is no federal data privacy law. And so all of these cases that we're doing are shoehorned into the idea that companies are misleading consumers about how it keeps or how they keep and use their data. You know, I mean, as, as probably every consumer knows, you go to any website and it asks you to accept cookies and probably 99% of people just click, yes, I accept all these cookies. And so I think that there is a lot of space for a data privacy law that requires companies to use much greater safeguards. And I think AI is only going to enhance that because people feel much freer talking to AI and getting answers than they do typing information in. Uh, so I, I do see that that is coming down the pipeline probably pretty soon, I would guess. And I guess the final question is lawyers such as yourself that deal with these kinds of issues, you really need a lot of specialized knowledge in technical areas, maybe more so than in earlier generations. Yes, although because most of these cases use the internet, you know, most, uh, I will not include myself as a young lawyer, but most young lawyers today are very familiar with these things, far more than, you know, us old guys. And so a lot of it is just what is a, re a reasonable consumer experience? And then, yes, sometimes we do have to hire experts with more technical knowledge. What I really love about the cases that I do is that people understand what it is that we are, you know, what we're going after these companies for doing, because everybody experiences it. And so I feel like, you know, our branch doesn't get enough publicity and credit for all of the work that we do in areas that affect Americans every day. Lisa Shao is assistant director of the Consumer Protection Branch of the Justice Department and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, along with more information about her citation. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the Air Force secrets leaker could end up getting away with it. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Jack Teixeira, the Air National Guard member, recently joined a long list of military and civilian employees who blithely gave away classified documents. A federal judge let Teixeira hire a private attorney with experience in national security cases. Here with analysis of what this might mean, Tully Rinky managing partner Dan Meyer. Dan, good to have you back. Glad to be here, Tom. Your firm, just in putting out some uh, ideas on this, said that the judge has allowed him to hire a private attorney. Is that itself remarkable in a case like this? Well, uh, maybe that's a little over dramatic. I think that you should not read too much into that, meaning how critical the government's prosecution of him is going to be. Hiring an attorney does not mean that you're armoring up for a criminal defense. Uh, Certainly with a case involving classified information, it's smart for public employees, and he is a public employee, a service member is a public employee, to have counsel about the classified information aspects of uh, what he's facing. And that will be equally helpful for him, both if he faces a criminal prosecution and if it's uh, simply restrained and left at the administrative level. But it does show that he at least is understanding how deep the water he's waded into is. Right. Do we know who the lawyer is and what do we know about that lawyer's record in these types of cases? That lawyer is not on my Rolodex. And I think that from what I've been able to Google, the person does seem uh, reasonably well qualified to, to give him advice. So I think that it's smart to armor up with an attorney, whether it's administrative or criminal. If it goes to an Espionage Act prosecution, that's when a defendant needs to think really carefully about who their counsel is. I think this would also apply to a certain former president who's uh, handling issues right now. Because when you enter the criminal prosecution realm, penalties are that much higher. When you're talking prison time, and that's when you want to think twice about uh, the quality of your legal uh, team. But this attorney has won hundreds of counts of acquittal on Guantanamo Bay detainees. Does that have relevance here? Uh, I I sort of raised my eyebrows at that. Yes, that, that shows that there's a good proficiency with military law, and that's important in this aspect because Teixeira is under uh, either Article 32 or Article 10 as a uh, service member. Uh, so I think for prosecution under the UCMJ, uh, or a criminal prosecution in the civilian courts uh, that's parallel to that, that would be a good person to have on your legal team. That attorney, if they do not feel comfortable with the classified information aspects of this case, could certainly reach out and get co-counsel to bridge the gap on that expertise. I mean, this line of discussion is not unlike the situation down in Florida with the judge who's handling the Trump trial. Everybody wants to sort of jump in and say, well, that person is not qualified. The bottom line is when you have a law license, it's your job to get the client the representation they need if you can't bridge the skills with with your own skills, if you have a gap. So I'm sure that attorney will be smart and reach out and get co-counsel if he or she needs it. Yeah, this is Michael Bockrock of Manhattan, and he's the one that's gotten all of these acquittals. But what is that going to cost, do you think? And how would a guy like Jack Teixeira, who's not all that sympathetic, I don't think he's going to be getting lots of money on GoFundMe for his defense, maybe, pay for Well, actually, Tom, I'm going to I got an opinion on that one right there. The question then becomes who's paying for the legal counsel. You know, there's rules. The bar has rules about people paying for legal services for individuals who are not actual individual. Uh, He may be getting support from uh, groups. Uh, There was some murmuring. I haven't seen it followed up on 
that some people thought he was perhaps a whistleblower. I haven't seen that in the facts. I haven't seen the evidence of what he was posting and what he was posting about. Uh, there was some question about whether he was challenging the Ukraine policy <laughs> as a, a National Guardsman from Massachusetts. So there are aspects of that which could lend itself to what's called campaign funding. And so maybe he will get uh, support from an outside group to do that. And, you know, this gets into an area where, you know, whistleblowing has been considered sort of a four-letter word <laughs> since the impeachment debate. But uh, you need to be careful about classifying people as not being a whistleblower before you know all the facts. And the critical question that to share a case is what was his intent in doing this? I think as an investigator, I would want to know, uh, is this uh, sort of uh, boasting uh, that he had access to the information? Was this just trying to be part of an online community? All of those present very serious security concerns. Sure. But you want to know what that intent was before... Uh, you line up the defense and certainly before you go forward with a prosecution. We're speaking with Dan Meyer, managing director of the law firm Tully Rinky. And that question of whistleblower, I mean, whistleblowers report to specific places if they think there's wrongdoing. And those don't mean posting to shadowy groups online. That's not where any legitimate whistleblower would go. Same thing with Edward Snowden. You know, well, government afterwards later said, well, maybe the we had to have this debate. This was what one of the intelligence leaders said. But if he had a legitimate whistleblower complaint about wrongdoing, you go to the agency head and then you go to the office of special counsel or whatever. There are places that can handle it. And those are legal procedures. Just blabbing it to the press or to online, that's not whistleblowing, really. Tom, you're well studied on this. And uh, thank you for putting that out there because all federal employees need to understand that this is not the 1970s, and you are not Daniel Ellsberg. Rest in peace, he passed away just recently. Right. So the rules coming out of Watergate were just wild, wild west, and Congress stepped in with the Whistleblower Protection Act and the Military Whistleblower Protection Act, and, and then eventually President Obama extended it to classified information with a document called PPD-19, and there were statutory amendments that basically said that for the purposes of classified information, which this involved, you cannot be a whistleblower unless you go through the prescribed procedures to the prescribed entities to receive the disclosure. Now, we should also remember for unclassified information under Title V, just everyday corruption, federal employees can still go to the media for, with that. You have to have certain permissions, but that's still a wide open area. It's dangerous, but it's not like classified information like the, the Tishkara case. Right. And of course, whistleblowing doesn't necessarily coincide with, well, I don't agree with our foreign policy, but that doesn't mean the government is you know, somehow subverting justice or stealing or taking bribes or committing false claims act if you're a company. I mean, you know, there are areas here. So I guess the other question is with security clearance and who the military grants these to, how could this case maybe have that rethought? So after 9-11, we expanded the number of security clearances. Things got out of control, okay? There's no question about it. It became sort of sexy, to use a probably not a great term, but it's true, sexy for federal administrators and managers and leaders to have a lot of cleared people underneath them. So the security state expanded, and we classified far more positions that probably had to be classified. We started classifying every piece of information on a federal computer system. So this meant that more and more people had to have access to classified information. And they 
the way these systems are even closed systems, the way they're open within their closed context, that means that very junior people could sometimes have access to information they did not need to see. And I saw this in spades in the intelligence community. I have always tried to stay away from classified information I don't need to see. But I had coworkers who would get in early just to go watch the latest videos, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just a prescription for disaster. So they know they need to dial back. I think you'll see a reclassification of positions. I think you'll see a downgrading positions. Even more importantly, I think you'll see a, a beefing up of monitoring, internal monitoring within the federal process. We've moved to continuous evaluation, continuous monitoring. So the old standard six, eight, 10 year background investigation periodicity is slowly going away and people will be monitored on an ongoing basis. And if your profile is problematic, you will come up for review before your coworker whose profile is not. To give it in an unrelated field, I think this is really fascinating. If you win or lose more than 10,000 in winnings at a casino, uh, there's an automatic email prompt that goes to your security officer now. That didn't happen uh, 10 or 15 years ago. You would have had to report that, but that will go automatically. Wow. All right. So, yeah, always in flux, this whole domain, fair to say. Well, that and then also the disseminators of classified information have to kind of think through where they're putting stuff. The problem with a networked system is that you can get access to it from lots of different places. And I really have questions about why that information was where he could get access to it. You know, within the intelligence community, this is pretty much a lockdown process and you have to have an aberrant person wanting to walk it out the door. But once you get outside the intelligence community, it is relatively wide open. And there has been fear of the Defense Department generally within the intelligence community for a long time. Sharing information becomes problematic because, frankly, the Pentagon can be sloppy with classified information. Dan Meyer is managing director of the law firm Tully Rinke. Thanks so much. All right. Anytime, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Energy Department is plotting out a major program to replace its legacy human resources IT system. It wants a modern cloud-based one. That's just one project out of a range of cloud initiatives DOE is working on, all with what officials say is a focus on security and stability. Ann Duncan is the department's chief information officer. She shared an update with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday during our annual cloud exchange. So there are many cloud strategies at DOE. Yeah. So we, we operate with both the uh, sort of the DOE-wide strategy, but each portion of the enterprise is expected to develop their own cloud strategy. Uh, to not only look at how they're going to implement cloud, but also how they're going to secure cloud. So a lot of our work uh, right now around the cloud is more about security uh, and making sure that people are are using the cloud in a secure manner and about scalability so that we can um, lower our costs by providing uh, higher scale instances. And even when our instances aren't at scale, by working with vendors to say, you know, DOE is one organization Uh, Our vendors are very good at selling to each of us individually, and and our point now is we're one organization and we want to work with you together to to create enterprise agreements that reduce the cost of the cloud across DOE. Got it. Yeah, we definitely want to talk about security later on, but just on that point about DOE is one enterprise, but of course you have the different national labs, I'm sure. It's, it's somewhat federated to a certain extent, but you're trying to create kind of sort of an enterprise approach when it comes to the cloud. How do you do that? How do you work with the different um, 
labs and, and components on their plans to make sure they line up uh, where appropriate across at the headquarters level. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, we're not just kind of federal. We're very federated because <laughs> yeah. keep in mind that, that 16 of our 17 labs are private sector. Uh, many of our um, uh, cleanup sites are also managed by private sector entities and, and even some of the, the DOE uh, and entities that are that are public sector still have huge private components to them. So um, there's a lot of uh, different missions and individuality. So our goal is to do two things. One is we create enterprise instances of these of these capabilities. Uh, you know, not only the cloud platforms but also cloud services. For example, we run ServiceNow as a low code, no code platform that people can use across DOE for their needs, but also we create enterprise agreements so that if it doesn't make sense for someone to be in our instance, for example, in many cases, um, from a standpoint of, of managing data, it may be that the, the labs can't work directly in one of our instances, but they can leverage enterprise agreement we've put in place to support costs across all of DOE. So um, the alignment is, is really on a, on a couple levels. One is how can we share to reduce cost, but the other is how do we ensure that the way people set up their instances follows all the policies and guidance that we provide, and whether that's DOE guidance or, or federal guidance. And part of our job is to make sure those guardrails are in place for everybody. So my office makes sure that people understand those policies and that they're part of developing the DOE part of that, what we call the directive process. So we, we engage them in that directive process, and we work together to proliferate those, uh, those directives and then people are able to follow them and and get them to use them in a way that meet their needs while still following all the rules. Yeah, and I'm sure when you find that you can save money as one of those smaller enterprises by working with the larger enterprise, that's pretty good uh, incentive to, to work in that in that manner. Absolutely. I mean, the, the most of the enterprise agreements we generate are generated because we're being asked by parts of the enterprise to generate them. So we're very careful. We, we can only do so many enterprise agreements, so we try and make sure the enterprise agreements we create are the ones that, that people are looking for and not the ones we just think are a good idea. So um, those parts of the organization are generally eager to use those when we put them in place. So DOE obviously has some very important national security uh, missions, um, You know, just, just national missions in general, ranging from you know, quantum computing to, to nuclear and, and the like. And you said, you know, you're using cloud services where they make sense, where appropriate. So, so how are cloud services perhaps enabling DOE's kind of really important bleeding edge national security missions today? So I think there's, there's a couple things to keep in mind, right? One is that uh, they, able, they enable us to have flexibility to scale work, uh, whether that is um, to, to use a hybrid cloud model where we're bursting into the cloud for capacity or whether, in fact, someone says, you know, really this work is best done by putting, putting all of it in the cloud. Um, if you look at, you know, we do high-performance computing, um, and there are sites where their high-performance computing is on-premise entirely. There are sites where it's in the cloud entirely, and then there are sites where high-performance computing is, in fact, done as a hybrid with a, uh, a high-performance computer on-premise, on, on the campus, and then bursting out in the cloud for some bigger jobs. So that's an example of how we're able to, to use that to create scale. Another example is for um, things that are not needed very frequently. Uh, you know, EIA is, is, is in the process of looking at how they can move towards more cloud services because they're a situation where their data is, um, it's our statistical agency, EIA, is, and their data is used occasionally 
uh, in big bursts. So when, when new data is put out there, then lots of people want to look at that, and then there's not a lot of use after that. So it's a great example of where we can create burst capacity in the cloud. Um, but also, it allows us to, uh, you know, from a less exciting place, you know, in support of those mission, that mission, uh, we're able to replace technology. We're able to replace older technology that might sit in our data center with more modern technology that's in the cloud um, without us making that one-time capital investment. And again, we're able to scale that as needed um, but that allows us to not only have access to newer technology, but access to more secure technology as well. And then the same thing is, you know, when you look at enterprise apps that are essentially commodity applications, uh, if we're doing those in the cloud, uh, we're using fewer resources to do those, and we're able to focus on the mission uh, more completely and know that those, you know, there, there are plenty of things that we could do more securely than the private sector, or, or at least the non-DOE private sector, but uh, I would argue that those things like email, for example, aren't. Uh, there are people who do email all day, every day. That's their job. Um, for us to come in and say, well, we're going to run email on-premise, as an example, makes absolutely no sense because that's not our core competency. We want to be focused on our core competencies and let other people run and secure things that aren't our core competency. Ann Duncan, CIO at the Department of Energy, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Find the full conversation and the rest of the 2023 Cloud Exchange at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 